You can turn to Psalm 113 is where we'll be this morning. Psalm 113. We, we don't actually know who wrote this particular psalm. We do know that it was written to be used publicly whenever the Jews gathered for their massive annual religious celebrations like Passover. They would all get together and they would sing this psalm together. So it's meant for worship. It's all ultimately about worship. Let's start and just read the first few verses. It says, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, you might notice in English, the first line of the psalm is three words, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, it's actually just one word, that really churchy word, hallelujah, Sometimes we'll sing that word or like if we've just had a really great day, we might shout hallelujah. But do we actually know what that word means? In Hebrew, it's a combination. It's a, it's a joining together of, of two Hebrew words, a name and a verb. So hallelujah is the verb halal plus the name yah. So let me, let me explain both of those. We'll start with the name. Yah is an abbreviation for Yahweh. That's the personal name of the God of the Bible. And in case you don't know the story, God sent Moses to Egypt to deliver God's people from slavery. And Moses asked God, well, who shall I say sent me? Because there were a lot of ideas about God in the ancient world. So who exactly are you, God? And so God said, well, you can call me Yahweh. That's, that's my name. But it's, a, it's an interesting name. It's a little strange. It's, it's not a proper name like Blake or Steve or, or, the God, or the names that people gave other ancient gods like Zeus or Molech. Yahweh is not actually a name at all. It is a verb. It is the Hebrew equative verb, I am. So when God said to Moses, here is my name, he didn't give him a proper name because there's no proper name that can contain our God. There's no label that can subscribe God. He's not simply a Steve or a Joe. He is I am, the the self-existent one. He is I am in contrast to all the other gods which are not. So hallelujah, the end of it is the personal name of God, Yahweh. The beginning of it is the Hebrew verb halal, which means to praise or to boast about someone. Sometimes it'd be used of boasting about a person, a human, but usually it was used of boasting about God. So halal was, was when the Jews would boast about their God, when they would praise God, when they would describe how, how great God is. And when we look through the Bible, we find that, that this halal, this boasting about God, it would include giving thanks for what God has done in your life. It would also include boasting about how awesome God is, how good he is, how great he is, how loving he is. And so anything that you do to declare how great God is or your thanks for what he's done, that would be halal, that would be praise. What's interesting is that when we hear the idea of praise, we tend to think about like singing. That's one way that the Jews would halal God, boast about God. But in the Old Testament, they would also write, they would also speak, they would also do poetry, and they would even dance. They had lots of different ways of declaring how great God is, of doing praise in the Old Testament. So when we think about hallelujah, praise Yahweh, what we're really talking about is the English word worship. That's kind of what this is about, what we mean in English by worship. Here's the problem, though. 
When you hear the English word worship, what do you tend to think about? Probably what we were doing five minutes ago. When John Mark was leading us on guitar and you were singing and you felt like that's worship. Well, that is part of worship, but that's not all that worship is. And you get a hint of that by looking at verse 3. Reread verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised, or hallelujah, worship. From the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, worship cannot be confined to Sunday mornings from 9.15 to 10.30 or 11 to 12.15. Worship is much, much bigger than that. Worship is way beyond just singing at church on Sunday mornings. So I want to give you a much better definition of the biblical word worship. It is not just singing on Sunday mornings. This is how I define worship. It is declaring the goodness and greatness of God to him, to ourselves, or to others. Worship is anything that we do to declare the goodness and or greatness of God to God to ourselves, or to other people. So let me illustrate. Worship includes any time that you say thanks to God. So you're going to have a meal this afternoon, and you're going to pray, and if you actually mean it while you pray, that is worship. Or tomorrow, Monday morning, you go to your job, and you sit down, and suddenly you remember a friend of yours who lost his job, and you suddenly feel really thankful that God has given you this job, and you still get a paycheck. And so you whisper to God, thank you for this job. That was worship. What you just did, that was worship. Or you're driving home tonight and you see the sunset and it's beautiful and you don't even say anything. You just think in your mind, wow, our God loves beautiful things. That was worship. That thought alone was worship. When you write down in your journal times when God has answered your prayer, that writing is worship. When you tell a classmate about something good that Jesus has done in your life, that is worship. This fall, when you go to an Aggie football game and the Aggies are winning as they always do and it's between plays and all of a sudden it occurs to you, here I am with 100,000 people enjoying entertainment when for most of human history, people were just trying not to die and here you get to enjoy all of this and you say to God, thank you for this good gift. That is worship. So worship is anything you think or say or write or do that declares to God or to yourself or to other people how good or how great God is. It's a 24-7 kind of thing, a holistic thing that's meant to include all of life. Psalm 113 was given to you by God to help you worship him 24-7. That's the point of this psalm. It's meant to help you worship as God intends. And it helps you worship by giving you two things. First of all, prerequisites for God-honoring worship. And second, inspiration. Motivation to inspire you to worship. So let's start with the, with the prerequisites for biblical worship. So prerequisites, most of you are familiar with what those are. Prereqs are the things you got to do before you get to do what you want to do. So if you want to take a fun upper level class, you got to take the lower level classes first. If you want to drive a car, you got to get a driver's license first. It's not negotiable. You got to satisfy the prereqs first. So it is with biblical worship. There are prerequisites that have to be satisfied first. And in this Psalm, two of them are mentioned. So two prerequisites to biblical worship. You got to have these two first right with God for your worship to count. Now, Let's be clear, you can come to church on Sunday morning 
and you can sing the words that we put up on the screen. No one is going to stop you from doing that. But if these two prerequisites are not true in your life, then all your worship is, is hot air and noise. It's not, it's not honoring God in any way. It does not count with God unless you have these two prereqs right. So two prerequisites that we get. How to worship God in a way that honors him. The first prerequisite is submission. And you get that right at the very beginning after that one word, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. That that English word servants, I think that's an unfortunate translation because it's not talking about the people on a PBS special, you know, one of these BBC shows and they live their interesting lives downstairs. No, it's slave. That's what the word means is is slave. And the psalm starts by, by declaring that we are slaves of God to remind us that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And so the Jews began this worship by declaring, you, God, are master. You are creator. You own me. I am your slave. This psalm of worship begins with a confession of submission. Okay, because you must submit to God to worship God. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, you so frequently see God's people being challenged to literally kneel before God. When it was time to worship, they were told, get on your knees. Kneel before God as an act of submission. Psalm 95, 6, one of the most famous declarations of submission. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. It's interesting, when you read through the Bible, the most frequent posture in worship is not standing, and it's not sitting, it's kneeling. Throughout the Bible, cover to cover, the great men and women of faith always worshiped on their knees or on their faces. Now, why? Why would God want us to worship on our faces, bowed down? Well, because it's really hard to feel prideful when you're on your face. You feel very small. And that's the point. By getting down on your face, you are recognizing that God is great and he is master and you are not. Okay, so for Jews, their, their worship began with bowing down to remind them that you must submit. Biblical worship requires submission. So this is really a good opportunity for us as a family to talk about our posture in worship. We are a very academic Bible church. And so many of us, not all, but many of us are somewhat reserved in our worship. We're not very expressive with our bodies. And part of that is because of baggage that comes from denominational divisions long ago. Part of it is because we have a wrong understanding of why God gave us bodies. For a lot of us, we think of our bodies in worship as as something we use to express how we feel. So if I feel very excited about God, then I will raise my hands. If I feel very broken and humble before God, then I will get on my knees. But if I don't feel it, then it would be hypocritical to raise my hands or get on my knees, right? Wrong. Your body was given to you not just to express your emotions, but to direct your emotions. Key to understanding this is that God gave you your body as a tool to direct your mind and your heart. 
Your body is a tool that you can use to help your mind think the right thoughts and your heart feel the right feelings. And so for the Jews, when God told them, bow down and worship me, he never said, if you feel it. No, you bow down so that you will feel it. The feelings follow the action. You use your body to direct your heart and mind to feel the right things and think the right things about God. And so this coming semester, all through the fall, we're going to be challenging you very directly to use your bodies in worship. We will challenge you to raise your hands when we are singing about the greatness of God. You are using your arms to direct your thoughts to the transcendence of God. We will direct you at times to hold your hands out open when we're singing about turning our lives over to God. We're going to use our arms to act that out. We're going to challenge you at times to get on your knees or your face right here in this room before God when we're singing about submitting ourselves to the King of Kings. So that's coming this semester. I'll give you fair warning. It's also coming today. So at the end of this sermon, we're going to worship again. That's why the set was short this morning. And when we worship, I'm going to challenge you to actually get on your knees before God. We're going to use our bodies to direct our hearts and minds to give worship to God. Now, for medical reasons, if you can't bow, that is totally fine. You can sit in your seat. But for those of us who don't have a medical reason... We're going to actually bow before God, sing for a while, and then we're going to stand up with arms up, raised to God. We're going to use our bodies to direct our minds and our hearts to feel and think the right things about God because your body is a tool God has given you to empower your worship. Okay, so for the Jews, they use their bodies by bowing down to direct their hearts and minds to submit to God because they understood that biblical worship can't happen without submission. But ultimately, when we think about submission, it's not ultimately about your body, it's about the reality of your life. That your entire life is submitted to God. 24-7 it belongs to him. And, and what the Israelites understood is that it's impossible to worship God and rebel against God at the same time. You can't have those. They can't coexist. If you are rebelling against God in your private life, now that that would mean harboring some private sin that you don't want to give up or some sin that you've just surrendered to, some sin that you feel like, hey, I deserve this. It's nobody's business that I'm doing this. If there's some sin that you're harboring in your life, then your worship is literally just noise and hot air. It doesn't count. It's not honoring God because you've said, no, I'm going to live with this sin. Now, that doesn't mean that God's looking for perfection. It means that he's looking for you to live with a soft heart that's trying to obey him and when you fall short, you are quick to confess. To worship God, we must obey God. It reminds me of a a kid that I knew in elementary school. He's really the only person in my whole life who I would say that was an enemy. I've had people who I've had disagreements with, but this one kid, he, he was incredibly cruel to me. The ironic thing is that often he was kind to my face. He would say nice things about me when he saw me. It was behind my back that he was cruel. As very literally true, one day in sixth grade, as recess is over and all the kids are running back inside, he called me over to the side of the building and I went over there. And he said some really nice things about me to my face. And I was really amazed by it. I thought maybe we're burying the hatchet after all these years. And then I turned around and he grabbed me by the shoulders and kneed me in the kidney. And I fell, wind was knocked out of me. And I realized in that moment, 
his evil actions invalidated his kind words. And yet that's exactly what we do to God. When we come and say nice words about God on Sunday morning and then rebel against him the rest of the week. It's not worship. Worship in that context is impossible. So again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a willingness to to seek to obey God in every area of life. And when we fall short, we confess it. We're living in the light. We're living truthful lives, seeking to obey him. To worship God in a way that honors him, we must submit. It begins with that, that true submission to him. Second prerequisite for biblical worship is knowledge. You cannot worship what you do not know. To worship God in a way that honors him, you must know him. And you see that if you look back at Psalm 113, you may have noticed there's a phrase that gets repeated a number of times, three times in those three verses. It's the name of the Lord. You're praising the name of the Lord. Names in the ancient world didn't work like they work today. If you know my name, my name is Blake. Knowing B-L-A-K-E doesn't actually tell you anything about me. There's no information wrapped up in those five letters. In the ancient world, though, people would be given a name that would summarize all of their life. It would summarize who they are and what they'd done. People's names would actually be changed later in life to reflect who they had become. So in the ancient world, when you describe that you knew someone's name, it doesn't mean that you know the proper word to call them. It meant that you know who they are. You know what they're like. You know what they've done. And so to praise the name of the Lord means you are praising who God is and what God has done. But if you're going to praise who God is and what God has done, you got to know who God is and what God has done. You can't worship God if you don't know that. So where do you begin? If you're kind of new to this whole church thing, Christianity thing, my encouragement would be to start in the source, the Bible. Uh, I would read first the book of John. It's in the New Testament. You'll get to know Jesus, God's son. Then go back to the beginning. Go back to Genesis. Read that. Read some of Psalms. You, you will learn about your God in his word. If you've been reading his word and you still want to go deeper, a couple resources for you. You can go to our website and download our essentials packet. So essentials of the Christian faith. It'll walk you through basic truths about God and Christianity so that you can know your God better. Third, I would encourage you to get really any book by a guy named A.W. Tozer, but particularly The Knowledge of the Holy is a book that Tozer wrote. It's short chapters that introduce you to to truths about your God. So A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. That will give you uh, knowledge about God so that you can worship him in a way that honors him. Okay, so if your worship is not just going to be noise and hot air, then it's got to be offered to God in submission and in knowledge. Those are the two prerequisites. Now that we've talked about that, let's move on to the second thing that Psalm 113 gives us. Here's the problem. Many days, we don't feel like worshiping God. We're just that we're not feeling it because maybe we're distracted by all the things of life. Maybe it's, it's all the shiny things that this world offers us. Maybe it's all the fun entertainment that's distracting us. Or maybe we just feel in pain. We're stressed, we're, we're struggling, we're suffering, and we just do not feel a desire to worship God. God knew that we would struggle with motivation for worship. He knew that that would be a problem, and, and he's kind. And so what he did is throughout his word, he gave us these passages of scripture that are meant to inspire worship, and that's the second half of this chapter. 
Second half of Psalm 113 is desired to inspire your worship. I think of this passage like kindling. Let's say that you want to start a bonfire. Not now, it's crazy hot. But this winter, you're getting together with your kids. You're going to roast marshmallows. You got your little fire pit. You're going to start a fire. Do you start with a big 10-inch diameter log of oak? No. You'd have to have a crazy amount of gasoline to get that thing to burn from nothing. No, you start with kindling. A little bit of wood, a little bit of leaves. You get that burning, building up heat. And then you can add bigger stuff. Well, that's what this passage is. It's kindling for your soul. It's what starts a fire of worship in your life. It's truth about God that's meant to inspire you to praise him and boast about him. So there's lots of passages that are meant to be kindling for your soul. This is one of them, verses 4 through 9 of chapter 113. So look with me. Verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? This first truth that's meant to kindle worship in us is God's greatness. God is great beyond anything we can fathom. He he is above all nations. It's the idea of God's sovereignty. No matter what is going on in earth, no matter what's going on in the U.S. or in North Korea or in Africa or anywhere, God is sovereign. He rules over all. Every nation, every ruler is ultimately in the palm of his hands. He is king of kings. So he is sovereign over earth, but then the author steps back from earth and looks and says, God is high and enthroned over the heavens. And and in Hebrew, when they were talking about the heavens, they were talking about literally everything, the entire universe. God is enthroned above the entire universe. He's transcendent over all that exists that's a fun thing to say. It's, it's even more fun to think about it and illustrate it for a moment. A few weeks ago, I was here and I talked about the universe and how big it is. And I threw out a bunch of numbers because I do that. And it's easy to hear those numbers and not really be um, impacted by them because they're so big that you can't imagine them. So I'm going to show you some pictures today. So um, here, let's say you walk outside tonight and a little exercise. You look up at the sky and this is not in town. You got to go away from where the lights are. So you drive out to Iola and, and you pull along the side of the road and you look out and you see all the sky and gosh, that's really big. So let's focus. And so you're just going to focus on that little red square. And when I looked really close at this picture, picture, I could see three stars in that red square. And I thought that's, that's pretty amazing. Three, st- I mean, just a tiny little square and there's three stars right there. But here's the fun thing. Let's say somebody loans you the Hubble telescope, whoever it is that gets to do that. And they give you the codes and you can direct it where you want. And you point the Hubble telescope tonight at that square. And then you look through the eye hole or whatever it is, you'll see this. You will see 10,000 galaxies and five quadrillion stars in that tiny little square. And that's all that we can see with current technology. There's far more there that we haven't figured out yet. And the point of all that to say is that is nothing compared to your God. He is greater than anything you can fathom. So our God is great beyond our imagination, beyond anything we can possibly wrap our minds around. He is incredibly great. That's the first piece of truth to to kindle a, a desire for worship in your soul. But the psalm doesn't end there. Second, your God is compassionate. Look at verse six. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. 
our God is not just great, our God is compassionate. And, and in Hebrew, it uses this word humbles. He, he humbles himself. That word in Hebrew, it means to humiliate oneself, to, to lower oneself, to stoop down, to abase oneself. So, so God lowers himself to, to see and care for human beings. So here's God transcendent above countless galaxies, and yet he lowers himself to see and care for humans. But what's interesting is it's not just any humans, although he does care for all humans, but the author particularly focuses our attention on two desperately needy groups of human beings. The first is the desperately poor, those who live in the ash um, in, in, in the waste is what the Hebrew is bringing up here. In the dust, this is referring um, to a garbage pile, to a landfill. In the ancient world, a, a garbage dump received everything that you throw in the trash and everything you flush down the toilet. It all went to the same place. So all, all goes to the same place. And that is where you would find the poorest of the poor living. Now, why would they live there? Well, first of all, because it was lit on fire all the time. That's how they disposed. They just, it was just a, a constant bonfire. And so they could be warmed there. They wouldn't freeze at night. So they'd live next to those burning piles of waste. Second, they needed to eat. And that's where they'd get their food is they'd find whatever leftovers they could. And so when we think about the desperately poor of the ancient world, we're not talking about the poor in America today who, who at least have some basic safety net, they had none. They, they were walking corpses covered in disease and human filth, the poorest and most wretched person you can imagine. And yet it says that our God stoops down to touch them and to embrace them and to raise them up. Okay, so the poorest of the poor. Second group he mentions is the barren. Now, infertility is always hard for, for any woman at any time, but it was a curse in the ancient world. Because for a woman in the ancient world, your children were the basis of your security and your worth. The, the security, your, your kids were who was going to care for you. There was no social security. That's how you know you're going to make it through life. And they were your worth because as a woman in the ancient world, when society looked at you, your entire worth was wrapped up in your children. So for a woman to not be able to have children in the ancient world was an absolute curse And yet it says that God stoops down and reaches his hand around this woman that the world assumes is cursed and he heals her and rescues her and gives her children. Now that does inspire a question in in the minds of anyone who's really thinking about this. Okay, well then why are there still so many poor people and barren women in the world today? And the answer is because the story's not over yet. The story's still being written and the best part is yet to come. Jesus is coming back and he will do all that's promised here. He will come and raise up the oppressed and the poor and the downtrodden and the barren. He will rescue them. He will save. He will bring redemption with him. In the meantime, we wait in faith, believing that just as God has rescued the poor, healed the sick, taken up the cause of the oppressed, he will do it again. So you're God. He is great and he is compassionate. But here's what I really want you to focus on. I want you to think about the amazing fact, not just that your God is great or that your God is compassionate, but that he is simultaneously both. To me, that's the most amazing thing about this psalm is that you get both next to each other. I I love, actually, there's two lines that span two verses. My favorite part of this psalm, I've underlined it in my Bible, is the second half of verse five and the first half of verse six. 
So it says, who, that is God, is enthroned on high above the universe, who humbles himself, stoops himself down to behold. I love that the author of this psalm, whoever it is, takes two truths that seem contradictory and puts them together. Your God is the kind of God who can simultaneously transcend the entire known universe and hold it in his hands and yet humiliate himself to walk with and lift up the poorest and most wretched person on this planet. You don't have to pick between the powerful God and the compassionate God. You get both at all times in your God. Infinitely more great than you can imagine, infinitely more compassionate than you can imagine. And what's amazing to me, remarkable to me, is how that is so different than anything we see in our world. Can you imagine the the great people, the rich people, the powerful people, the famous people of this world? The, The politicians, the celebrities, the actors, can you imagine them stooping down to put their arm around Somebody, not, not, not the poor here, but, but a person living in the dumps of Cairo, Egypt, subsisting on whatever rotten food they can find, covered in waste, covered in disease, and yet this famous, powerful person puts his arm around him, not for a photo op, but every day, walking among that person, lifting that person up. In our human reckoning, we can't imagine the person described in verse five being the same as the person described in the next verse. No, you can't get it together. The absolute greatest of the great reaching down, humiliating himself or herself to walk among the poorest of the poor. And yet your God is both. I call this the glorious paradox of God. And for me, it's what inspires worship more than anything else. There's these passages, this is just one of many in the Bible, where you are told two things about God that would never both be true of any human being. You'd never have these two wrapped together. And yet for your God, he combines them both at all times. You don't have to pick between worshiping the greatest God you can imagine or worshiping the most compassionate God you can imagine. You got both. He combines both at all times in his perfect character. And that is why he's worthy of worship. Greater than you can imagine in power, and yet greater than you can imagine in compassion. And so the only appropriate response is worship. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing together again as a family about the greatness of God. And as we do this, we're going to use our bodies to help us to to express our submission to God and to inspire our hearts to feel the right things about God and our our minds to think the right things about God. I I don't know how you felt when you entered here this morning. You you may have felt really stressed. You, You may have felt really sad about something, really lonely, really struggling with something. You may have had a fight in the car on the way here. I've done that and I'm a pastor, totally happens. I don't know how you felt coming. What I know is that right now you can use your body to direct your feelings. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to use our bodies. I'm going to challenge you to actually get on your knees. I know it will feel weird at once, but we'll all do it together so that we can all share in that weirdness. It's going to be wonderful. I promise you, I'm going to come do it too. So I would ask you to kneel at your 
pew or in the aisle. We have huge aisles here, whatever's comfortable for you. Again, if for medical reasons, if you can't kneel, that's totally fine. Just stay in your seat and hunch yourself over, reflecting that submission to God. But let's kneel down. John Mark is going to lead us in worship. We're going to start in humble worship, submitting our lives, bowing our lives before God. Then John Mark will direct us, and I'd like you all to stand at that point and raise your hands, and we'll finish by celebrating the greatness of God. So let's start on our knees. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your arms are wide open to us. We praise you that you would accept worship from people as unworthy as us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son to die and rise for people as unworthy as us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that the God who created all of the universe by a mere word would choose to stoop down and humiliate himself to see us and care about us and surround us with his arms and lift us up. We thank you and we praise you that in you we find perfect and infinite power joined at all times with unlimited compassion. We praise you that you are greater than anything we could have come up with to worship as God. You are worthy, Heavenly Father. So is your Son, so is your Spirit. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.